Let me just start with prayer today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit who is going to guide us into all truth. And we're thankful for giving us the Bible in our own language. We can understand, we can know you. So would you help us to see you and to know you and to believe, firmly believe in who you have revealed yourself to be. So may the word be faithfully proclaimed. Give us ears to hear now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are times when it is very good to laugh. Some have said laughter is kind of like a medicine for your soul, and it can be that way. And this is one of these times where it is a good time to laugh. And I say that because for three chapters of Genesis now, we've been dealing with one of the saddest portions of the Bible. So if you're feeling a bit down after listening to all this talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and other stuff like that, I, I can understand if you're feeling a little sad. But if you remember going back to chapter 17, we saw there, there in Genesis 17, it portrayed God solemnly reaffirming his promise of a son to Abraham. And since then, it's been a lot of bad news, hasn't it? For three chapters now, we've there's just been nothing but one grim revelation or act after another. Bad stuff happening. So if there ever was a time to kind of just break out of that, that gloom and that darkness and come into the light and and to laugh, now would be a good time. It's, now, now's the time for that, because this is when God finally fulfills this promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac is the son of promise, and he's finally born here to Abraham and Sarah. And it's interesting, in verse 6 here of Genesis 21, Sarah says that God has brought me laughter. Now, she's not laughing because this is necessarily so funny. It's more of a laughter because, oh, finally, praise God, she's, she's rejoicing in this good news that God has fulfilled His promise to them. And by the way, there's a bit of a play on words going on here because did you know the name Isaac means laughter? The very name Isaac means laughter. So every time, every time they would mention their son's name of Isaac, you can... Just, just I'm sure they were thinking of this. We need to be thinking laughter, the fulfillment of God's promise. And so it's interesting that laughter occurs at Isaac's birth. Now, why? Because finally what we have here now is the son of God's promise has been given. So with that little introduction, let's read some scripture together from Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. 
everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. We'll stop there for the moment. So here's our theme. That uh, Some things that we can learn about God from our text today. Hopefully you can see this. Again, God's well-balanced here, that God is great and God is good. God is great and God is good. So the first first point we're going to look at here, the first thing we want to see is a, of our great and good God from these first seven verses. What do we learn about God from this text? Remember, God is, has given us these Old Testament stories here, and He's talking about Himself, and He, he wants you to learn some things about Him. In his ways. And one of the things we learn here is, first of all, that God is faithful to his promises. He's a covenant keeping God, a God who makes promises and keeps those promises. Now, hopefully, you remember in the previous chapters here that Abraham and Sarah had believed God partially, but they also had doubted him at times. At times, they had tried to take matters into their own hands, thinking that that uh, it was necessary for them in some way or another to kind of help God out because God needed some help. A year earlier, Sarah had utterly discounted God's promise. Remember, she laughed (laughs) at one point. But God was faithful in spite of human unbelief. That's a beautiful truth. Despite our unbelief, God uh, remains faithful to us. And this is a point that is made here in the text by repetition. God often does that by repeating stuff. And if you look in the first two verses, I think it's three times he he brings this truth out by stating, hey, I'm I'm keeping my promises here. Because notice it says in verse 1 that Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said. This is not a new promise. He had said it several times way back in chapter 12 and in, and in chapter 15. He repeated it again in chapter 17. But it, but it goes on, it says, that the, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That's the second time he mentions it. Look at verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age 
at the time of which God had spoken to him. Three times he's repeating this idea. And what's the point? That God is faithful. Particularly in regard to fulfilling his promises. So let me ask you, my friends, has God made a promise to you? The answer is yes, by the way, in case you're wondering. God has made a promise to you, multiple promises. You can find them in your Bible. And if he has, you can be sure that he will keep it. Now, sometimes we waver, but God's not going to waver. Sometimes we may disbelieve, but God remains faithful. Now, my friend, here's some good news, just as we see here that one day there's going to come a time, just like Sarah, you might laugh at the fulfillment of God's promises. I've, I've kind of found myself kind of re- laughing and rejoicing at various times in my life how, how God has remained faithful to me. I hope you will find that to be the case in your life as well. So we see a faithful God, but number two, we also see an all-powerful God. God is all-powerful. Abraham and Sarah learned here that nothing is too hard for Yahweh. Nothing. Now this too is emphasized in the, the, the text in the passage here. God does it again using repetition. Uh, as he talks about Abraham's age at the time of Isaac's birth. It's interesting in verse 2. It says that Sarah bore a son to Abraham in his old age. He's 100 years old. At verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Verse 7 says a similar idea. that Sarah says this, that I have borne him a son in his old age. Why did God repeat that three times? He's trying to get across this idea that, yeah, not only is he faithful, but he, he, he's faithful because he has the ability, one, one reason he's faithful is he has the ability to keep his promises. He's all-powerful. Now, humanly speaking, there was no possibility at all that Abraham could have a child at this age. It wasn't possible for his wife either. But although there, it was impossible with men, with God, of course, all things are possible, aren't they? Why is that, though? Why is it possible? Because God's sovereign. God, he, He's a God who reigns supreme over all of His creation. He's the one who created that womb within Sarah. He's the one who, who gives Abraham the, the ability or not to have children. And so he can do what he will in his universe. It all belongs to him. He created it all. And this is worth some reflection on our part, because when you and I read a passage like this, we we might tend to say things like, well, you know, that was all right for Abraham and Sarah. God certainly did a miracle for them, but He can't do a miracle for me. I mean, my my situation is different. It's unique. and uh, You know, just God can't do that. You know, you might say, well, I'm too old, or uh, maybe my situation is just too, too difficult. Uh, maybe the people opposing me are too strong for God. You ever feel that way? Well, let's face this for what it really is, my friends. When we talk that way or think that way, what, what's our problem? It's unbelief. Just simply unbelief. 
I mean, after all, is God sovereign? Is God all-powerful? Since He is, you, you, we, we, can do, we, we can do what He wants us to do. He can do what He wants to do, and what He wills to do, what He's promised to do. I think this has special bearing in particular on the matter of age. Sometimes we make excuses for our age, or some people might say, well, I'm too young, or I'm too old, or whatever excuse you might come up with. And some of us say, well, it's too late in my life for God to work, or, you know, that person's too old to get saved, or I can't serve God, I, you know, I'm, I'm nearing retirement, or I am retired, or whatever. But if the biblical record of Abraham's life is true, and it is, then you're never too old for God to do a new thing in us and through us and with us. Even if you're at the age of retirement or, or are retired, God may well have an important work ahead for you to do. I mean, you think about it. Moses, how old was Moses when God calls Moses to lead the, the Israel out of Egypt into the promised land? He's 80 years old. <laughs> so retirement should not be a stop for you. It shouldn't be a barrier for you. Do not say, but I don't have the strength to do it. Are you 100 years old? God's going to give you whatever strength is necessary. Now I notice from this passage that God did not merely give Sarah the strength to conceive and bear a child. Did you notice the text said that he actually gave her the ability to nurse the child as well? Verse 7 says that. Now, Sarah is basically 100 years old, too, almost at this point. Abraham's 100 years old, but yet God's giving them this strength and this ability to do this. Abraham, by the way, did not receive strength to procreate merely one child. Did you know if you read on in the chapter 25 that uh, he has six more children after 100 years old? Six more children by after Sarah dies. Uh, Abraham remarries with uh, Keturah, and he has six more children. You can read about that later. So what's the point? Well, if God gives you a task, he's going to give you the strength to do it. He's going to give you the time that you need to do it. Don't underestimate God. He's all-powerful. Well, there's a third thing about God we, we learn here is that God is in no hurry. Did you, God, did you know that God never gets stressed out? God doesn't have one of those moments where he's in a hurry and he's stressed out. He's, he's um, you, you know, we all have these moments. You know what I'm talking about, right? He's not in a hurry to carry out his promises, but rather he has set a time for their fulfillment, and they happen right on time. He's never late. Never early. He's exactly on time. <laughs> That's a great truth. If you look at verse 2, by the way, uh, notice what it, what it says. When was Isaac born? At the time of which God had spoken to him. Right on time. <laughs> this time had been mentioned back in chapter 17. Don't turn there, please. But in chapter 17, it says, 
God says, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So, that's where the time period is coming from. Chapter 17, verse 21. And then in chapter 18, verse 10, it's interesting, uh, here in, in verse 10 and 14, God repeats twice a similar idea. In chapter 18, verse 10, he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And then in verse 14, he says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. How many times does God have to say the same idea? (laughs) There was an appointed time when God was going to fulfill his promise. And now the promise is fulfilled. It's neither early nor... And it's not late. It's at the very time God had promised them. There's a lesson to be learned there for us. Maybe it's the same with you as it is for me. One of the hardest things that that we have to face in life, it seems to be when when we have to deal with the delays of God. When God's actions seem to be delayed, and and, and maybe, maybe it's something you've even prayed about, and, uh, by the way, sometimes God's answers to our prayer is wait. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says wait. And, and sometimes that answer to our prayer is, well, it's just delay it. Delay it. And so when that happens, sometimes we worry and we fret. And sometimes we might do what Abraham and Sarah did here. And we might set about to work the, the answer for ourselves, and we might kind of take matters into our own hands because we think God needs some help. Now, what's wrong when we do this? Well, simply put, we're not trusting God, are we? If we kind of take matters into our own hands. We're, we're doubting one of two things. We're either doubting God's ability to do what He's promised to do, or we're doubting God's timing, like... God's timing is messed up, and God doesn't know what's best for you. Either way, it's a problem, and you're not trusting God. What we need to do is trust God and wait upon Him. Well, there's some other things we can learn from this text, and we're just going to use the, the people that God's put in the text what, to, to learn some lessons, learn some things from this. Just kind of gather some big-picture stuff. If you're one of these detailed people who loves to dig into some details, I'm sorry. There's just some things here we're going to have, kind of have to set aside. Look at what, what is it God wanting to teach us? And so we see in verses 8 through 11, the, the characters here are Isaac and Ishmael, two sons of Abraham. And the Bible compares them, and I'm going to compare them here because God compares them together in Scripture. Now, we read earlier from the book of Galatians, and in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Ishmael represents some things to us. And in fact, God says, in this situation, it's important that we take Galatians chapter 4 allegorically. Now, if you don't know what that word means, allegorically just means it's like he's spiritualizing the passage, and there's like there's some symbolism and stuff going on there that Ishmael represents some things, Hagar represents some other things, Hagar and um, 
Abraham and Sarah represent some things that are going on there. And they're teaching us some spiritual truths. So, since the Bible is doing that, and God has said it's appropriate for us to interpret it allegorically, at least in Galatians 4, we're going to do the same. So, here's the first thing we can see. That Isaac represents our second birth. This 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 uh, spiritual birth, if you will, because... Isaac is represented here as the Spirit. So he's representing the believer's first... Uh, Ishmael represents the believer's first birth, or, the, or this flesh idea, which is mentioned here in Galatians 4. Look at this, verses 28 and 29 on the screen says this, Now you brothers, like Isaac... <laughs> did you see the comparison? Brothers with Isaac... What are, what are believers? They are children of promise, but just as at that time he, that's referring to Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, so see the connection with Ishmael and flesh, what did Ishmael do to Isaac? He persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. So, uh, do you see the connection? I should have done this. I'm sorry. I should have put it on the screen so you'd see. So you have on one side of the screen, just picture Ishmael. On the other side of the screen, put flesh. On one side of the screen, if you put Isaac, on the other side, you could put spirit. So that's the, the contrast or comparison that God is doing here. Ishmael, what, how was he born? He's born of the flesh. Because Abraham had not yet died, he's still able to produce a son, uh, and therefore Ishmael comes into the world. But Isaac, he's born of the Spirit, because, at least physically speaking, uh, at that particular time, both of Isaac's parents were considered to be dead, not able to bear children. So only God's power could have brought conception and birth of this man named Isaac. But Ishmael was born first. Why? Because what comes first? The natural, according to Corinthians, natural comes first, then second comes the spiritual. You have you have a physical birth, and then you have you are born again. The Bible says, and you have the spiritual birth or a second birth. And there's some some truths about salvation and the Christian life we can learn that Paul's trying to make from Galatians 4. And so, my friends, when you trusted Jesus Christ, if you did, if you put your faith in, in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you experienced a miracle birth that came from God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of God in you. He transforms you, converts you, regenerates you. And so in Galatians, it's interesting, it says that Abraham represents faith and Sarah represents grace. Look, look what it says here in Galatians 4. Again, starting at verse 24 on the screen. It says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So you have an old covenant and a new covenant represented here with these two females. So one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. And 
and she is our mother. So again, I should have put this on the screen, I'm sorry. Just picture the two, the two females here, the two women. So you have Hagar, what is she representing? She's representing Mount Sinai. Why Mount Sinai? Because that's where God gave His law to Israel. So all 613 commands, uh, some of them are applicable today, and most are not. All right, so that's where God gave the law. But then you have the other one mentioned there. You have Sarah mentioned. What is she representing? She's mentioning, she's representing grace. She's representing freedom. She's representing the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem of heaven. And then next to, next to Hagar, you could put the, the old Jerusalem there, this place of slavery. What is the point? Why is God mentioning all that? Because Isaac was born by grace through faith. He's, he's a child of Abraham and Sarah. And so the connection that Paul's making in Galatians 4 is, how do you become a Christian? How, are you, how do you become a believer? How are you regenerated? It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not through the law. It's not through the keeping of commandments. See, the, the law in Mount Sinai only brings you into bondage. You cannot be saved through works. You're saved by grace through faith. A sinner can only enter the family of God when they recognize they're lost. And it's through faith and the grace of God enabling this sinner to receive Christ. So a second point is, is we can make here is this, that Isaac pictures the child of God in the joy that he brought to his family, particularly his mother and father. Because remember, Isaac means laughter, and this time it was, it was not a laughter of unbelief. Now Sarah had done that previously when she heard Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ mentioned they would have a son in their old age, and she did laugh. But nowhere do we read that Ishmael caused great joy in Abraham's home. If anything, we see the opposite. Although it is clear Abraham loved Ishmael and wanted the best for him. From before his birth, Ishmael was a source of painful trouble. And even after he's a he's a teenager now at this point, he caused even greater conflict in his family. And there's this connection that the Apostle Paul's making in Galatians 4. It's the same with our sin nature. If you move on into chapter 5, there's a conflict. Chapter 5 of Galatians says the conflict is between the flesh and your spirit. It's between that sin nature and God. See, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within a believer. An unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing within them, so it's all it is is the sin nature. And you, you want to do what your sin nature does, but you, when you become a believer, now you have war going, the war of the soul is taking place. So your flesh, your sin nature is not able to produce the fruit of the Spirit, no matter how hard it tries. But note a third comparison between Isaac and the child of God. Because verse 8 says, the child grew and was weaned. And by verse 8, I'm referring to Genesis 21, by the way. 
And so the connection is here is the new birth, my friends. The, when, when someone is born again, that's not the end. <laughs> it's a beginning. The believer has to feed on God's Word and grow spiritually. And as a Christian matures, then the Bible says you can put away those childish things and allow God to wean us so that you, don't, you no longer have to keep drinking the milk. You can chew on some meat. And number four, like every child of God, Isaac experienced persecution. Because in Galatians 4, it says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Ishmael was apparently an obedient son up to this point until at least Isaac enters the scene and becomes a family member. And that's the way it is in your soul. The flesh begins to oppose the spirits when you have a spirit. And it has been well said that the sin nature knows no law. But the new nature needs no law. <laughs> and this is certainly illustrated here with Abraham's two sons. There's, there's a conflict when, when Isaac becomes a family member. And number five, when like Isaac you were born of the Spirit, you know what happens to the Christian? You become rich. <laughs> Isaac became rich because he was a child of Abraham, who was a rich man. Isaac was the heir of all his father owned, and the good news for us as believers says in Romans chapter 8, it says that God's children are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's good news. And number six, finally, we, we see here that Isaac was born free. But Galatians 4 says that Ishmael was born of the... He, he, he's what? He's, he's a son of the slave woman. Look at Galatians 4.22 here. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Of course, the free is from Sarah, and the slave woman, of course, is Hagar there. Now, we need to understand something here, because freedom is a key concept, a key idea in the book of Galatians. It's one of those key blessings of the Christian life, in fact. And the point that Paul's trying to make here in chapter 4 and 5 of Galatians is, don't put yourself in bondage to the law. You can't be saved by keeping of God's commands. No person except Jesus, could keep all 613 of those commands. No one. And that was the point. It showed that we're under this bondage if we try to do that. But there is freedom, because look at this. Galatians 5, verse 1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. So, what do you do if you find freedom in Christ? Stand firm. Stand firm in Christ and that freedom that He gives, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't put yourself under those Old Testament laws, which could never save anybody. Don't even tie it. It just puts you in slavery. Of course, Christian freedom, by the way, some people think it just it's kind of like anarchy. <laughs> no, that's not what it is, my friends. 
Christian freedom does not mean anarchy. It doesn't mean that you just get to do whatever you want to do. That's not what it's about. Christian freedom means you you now have freedom to be and do all that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Because as an unbeliever, you could never do that. None of us could do that. None of us could, could obey God fully all the time. Well, here's what Philip Brooks, he said, quote, No man in this world attains to freedom from any slavery except by entrance into some higher servitude. And of course, that higher servitude he's talking about there is a, is a personal surrender to Jesus Christ. So how do you defeat sin? I like this saying. You defeat sin by superior pleasure. My friend, if you don't have a superior pleasure, you will serve sin. You will. You need something that is, is better and more powerful, that is superior than you. It's your only hope. Therefore, no one is more free than the child of God who is delighting in God's will. And, and then you're, you're able to love God, and therefore you can do it from your heart. Well, there's a third group of people that are mentioned in our text that we need to talk about. And that's these two women who are Sarah and Hagar. Let's talk about Sarah and Hagar for a moment. See, Sarah was wrong in those previous chapters when she told Abraham to marry Hagar. Go have a a son through your slave. But in our text here in chapter 21, she's right when she tells Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away, out of the camp, no longer a part of the family. And I say that because the Apostle Paul He sees in this particular event an allegory involving the law of Moses and the grace of God. He says so. Again, let's let's read a few different verses here, starting in verse 21. Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, or is the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So let me kind of help you understand this. So hopefully you you understand Abraham's wife Sarah represents grace. Hagar represents law. The lesson is simply that God's children, according to, to the Apostle Paul here in Galatians, God's children are to live under the blessings of God's grace, and and not under the bondage of the law. Because the law couldn't save. And so when you consider the facts about Hagar, here from this text, you're going to better understand this relationship between law and grace in regard to the Christian life. So let's just think about some facts here 
As we think of Genesis 21 and how that relates to salvation in Galatians 4. So what have we seen so far? Number one, first fact is that Hagar was Abraham's second wife. His first wife was obviously Sarah. And so what's going on here? Hagar's added alongside Sarah. And, and the connection to Galatians 4 is this, my friends. Likewise, the law was added alongside God's already existing promises, and it was only meant to be a temporary thing. It was, it was pointing toward Jesus. It was all pointing toward Him, as Hebrews tells us. See, God did not start with law in the Bible, like some people think. He actually started with grace. All the way from the very beginning of Genesis, that's where he started. And if you go on to the history of Israel, we see the redemption of Israel from Egypt itself was also an act of God's grace. And then God gave them sacrifices. He gave them a priesthood. Again, all of that was of his grace. So before Moses gave the law, Israel was already in a covenant relationship with God. If you will, think of it this way. They were married to God through His covenant, through His, that's what marriage is, is a covenant. So, Hagar was Abraham's second wife. A second fact we see from the text is Hagar was a servant. The Apostle Paul, by the way, asked in Galatians, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? If it can't save, why did He give it at all? And by the way, God gives the answer because he says that the law was God's servant. It was a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It was a child's tutor, which, which just means uh, it was there to keep an infant nation, uh, which was Israel, under control. It was preparing them for the coming of a Redeemer. It was pointing to Jesus, the only one who was able to keep the law. And so the law was given for other reasons too, by the way. Romans tells us it was given to reveal sin. It was never there to redeem us from sin, but it showed what sin is. God's uh, grace does not serve law. It's law that actually serves grace. So the law reveals our need for grace. Grace saves us completely apart from the works of the law, Romans tells us. So Hagar's a servant. Guess what? The law was also a servant. It was helpful in that regard. But there's a third fact we can learn here, is that Hagar was never supposed to bear a child. It should have never happened. And that's the way it is with the law. See, the law can't give you what only Jesus can give you. Well, what does Jesus give you? The Bible says Jesus can give us life. He gives us righteousness. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gives an eternal inheritance, and the law can't give you any of that. It is totally inferior. And all those blessings, by the way, only come by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 tells us. A fourth fact is this, that Hagar gave birth to a slave. Isn't that interesting? A slave. See, Ishmael, even though he's a child of Abraham, is still a slave, the Bible tells us. And, and that's the way it is. See, if you, if you decide to live under the law, 
If you, if you think you can earn a right standing with God by keeping 613 of his laws, then you become a child of Hagar. You become a slave. You are in bondage. Because the law produces bondage, not freedom. And it's interesting, this is one of the first doctrinal battles the church faced. Because Galatians is one of the, the early of, of Paul's letters. Many believe his first letter he ever wrote to this region called Galatia. And so this doctrinal battle um, was a very, very important issue. It had to do with salvation. How are you saved? And it decided that sinners are saved wholly by God's grace. You are saved apart from the keeping of the Mosaic law. See, there were legalists in the church. By the way, the real definition of a legalist is someone who thinks they can earn a right standing with God by keeping the law. And and, and there's still legalists in the church today who think um, they can do this. God's going to smile on them and He's going to approve of them by all these good things that they do. And what they end up doing, is, as it says here, is you're, you're turning people into slaves. You're turning yourself into a slave. You're in bondage. But chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians tells us freedom is available in Christ. God calls us to a freedom in Christ. Well, there's a fifth fact we learn here is that Hagar was cast out. See, there was no compromise. She's cast out completely, and God approved of that. God tells Abraham to do so, and it's done permanently. And what it also did is Ishmael was to go with Hagar. So instead of of subduing the flesh, think of this spiritually speaking, what happens? The law actually arouses the flesh because the Bible says the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. So believers don't need to put themselves under some kind of religious law in order to become like Christ. You are already complete in Christ. You are full in Christ, the Bible says. Read Colossians 2. Read Romans chapter 8. See, you are full in Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit to enable you now to overcome this flesh, overcome this sin. Hagar was cast out. Your sin is cast out with Christ. It's under His blood. There's a last fact that is important to mention here is that Hagar never married again. Never. The Bible doesn't say she ever married again. And what's the point of that? That God gave His law to Israel only? The law in the Old Testament was only for Israel. It is not for believers today. It's not for His church God never gave it to the Gentiles. He never gave it to the church. But having said that, nine of the Ten Commandments are actually quoted again in your New Testament and certainly apply to believers today, and you need to obey them. But we're not commanded to obey all of those ceremonial laws that you see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Those were given to Israel. And the Apostle Paul affirmed that it is love that fulfills the law. And so when we love God and you love one another, then you want to obey God. And the Bible says in the Holy Spirit's power, then you can do what's right. 
And, and you're going to do it for the right motive, which, of course, is love. But some people look at these kind of passages and they twist them. Passages like Romans 6 and Galatians 4 and think they can just sin all they want and do whatever they want. But that's not the point, my friend. As, as we conclude here, let me just drive home a, a point that's really important here is that we should note that there is a lawful use of the law. By all means, read Exodus, read Leviticus, and you see all 613 laws, even the ceremonial ones. There is a point to all of those. See, while the law can't save us, it can't sanctify you, it can't set you apart to God, it does reveal the holiness of God. It reveals the awfulness of your sin. The ceremonial part of the law illustrates the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Read Hebrews if you want to understand all. what's the point of all that stuff. See, the law is a mirror. It helps us to see our sin. See, it's kind of like having... Let me illustrate it this way. Yesterday I milked some cows. So farmers will get this one. And I haven't milked cows for maybe 22 years. I have some experience in the past. It's been a really long time, and I was really rusty and did a really horrible job. And as cows do, they um, they pass stuff out the backside without getting real gross at the moment. And, and what happened is, is in the process of milking those cows, I got stuff on my face. And I couldn't see it until I got home. Now, did you notice it, my love, when I got home? She didn't want to kiss me. Now, I don't blame her. I had some spots on my face, which I didn't know were there. Did you know they were there? And so when I went to look in the mirror, the mirror revealed the spots that were on my face. And fortunately, I removed them. The mirror was really helpful. And that's kind of what the law does. God says the law, one of the purposes of the law is to show those ugly spots that are on our face. It helps us to see our sin. Because look what James 1 says here. James 1.25 says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, the previous verses talk about the Word of God being like a mirror. It shows those flaws, which aren't necessarily so nice to look at. But God's Word is also a mirror that reveals not just those the sin, it reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. See, we get to see bad stuff, but we get to see good stuff. And so as you meditate on Christ, the Bible says you can be transformed and become more like Him. Where is that found in the Bible? Look here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, my friends. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all, with unveiled face, take off the veil, take off that, that barrier that, that's, that's, that's going to cover you up. Why? Now you can behold the glory of the Lord. And in the process, look what it says. You are being transformed. It's a process. You're being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Praise God. The Holy Spirit's doing a work in you, taking off the veil, revealing your sin, in this case, revealing Jesus Christ in all of His glory, 
So you get to see reality. <laughs> reality. The veil isn't reality. That's good news. So may God enable us to see from His Word that He is both good and great, or He is great and good. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are great and good, and You're always these things. You never stop being both of them at the same time. We're thankful for that that balance. So may we know You as You have revealed Yourself to be in Scripture. And may we believe, may we live like you are great and good. We are failures. We mess up. We sin. And so may your word do its work in us and show us the mess on our faces to show our sin. And so may we, when we see it, as you reveal it to us, may we do something about it. But may we, may we keep looking to Jesus. And may your word reveal Jesus to us in all of His glory. So yes, may we take sin seriously, but may we, but may we know Jesus. And may Jesus be that superior pleasure that causes us to, to defeat the sin, to defeat the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.